We are in Matthew 26, verse 36 this morning as we close out this uh, series today. Next week, we're gonna talk about why the resurrection matters, not did it happen. We've talked about that before, how we know that Jesus rose, but why does it matter that he rose again? And that's gonna start a new series in 1 Peter for us. But today, we're gonna talk about, we're gonna continue and finish this series uh, on our responsibility to others. Now, there's this family, this couple that Carrie and I have known for as long as we've been a couple. Uh, and they are good Christian people. They have a great marriage. We love them. But they have a problem in their marriage that comes around every fall because the, the man in the couple, the husband, is really, really into his football team. And it's a team that is not from around here. So he can only watch them on TV. And when his team is playing, he just behaves in a way that she doesn't like. I'll put it that way. And she has complained about this for as long as we've known them. And for years, all of us who knew them just sort of dismissed it because we just said, you know, guys get into football. I get it. I talk back to the screen when my team's playing. I'm a little ridiculous. I understand. And, and ladies, forgive me. I'll just confess that I used to think in, in my mind, I never said this out loud. I used to think, you know, she's probably one of these women who expects her husband to hang on her every word and she's just upset that he's paying attention to something besides her. I was wrong. I admit that I was wrong. And the way I found out I was wrong was they invited us over to their house one year for lunch and his team happened to be playing during that, during that lunch. And we saw what she'd been talking about all this time. And honestly, it was so, it was such a dramatic shift from who we knew him to be to what he was behaving like sitting on that couch while his team played. It was such a, he became a different person. So at first we thought he was just playing along, that this was a, an elaborate practical joke she'd been playing for years and now he's acting out the part. But then we realized, no, this is really how he behaves. And so you, could, you should have seen the uncomfortable looks we were giving each other like, what's going on here? What, what just happened to him? How did, how did he become this? And then it's like, okay, uh, you know, I, I really do need to condition my hair tonight. And I, you know, I, I got some laundry to do and everybody's making excuses to leave. And so now we're still friends. They're still a great couple. But whenever they invite us over to their house, we're like, okay, is his team playing today? Because if so, I don't want to go over there. This is a true story. And it's a silly illustration of the point I'm trying to make, which is that stressful times sometimes bring out sides of our personalities that we don't want anybody to see. We all have this carefully curated personality that we, only, that we let everybody see, and that's the image we want them to think of us as. But then in those moments of stress, do they see something else? You've experienced this, I'm sure. You could probably tell a story of a guy or a woman that you thought was really, really great and gracious and fun, and then you saw them in an argument with their spouse or getting angry at one of their kids, and you think, oh, they're not nice at all. Or, or you had that person you thought was your true friend, somebody kind and gracious and always, always good to you, and then you disappointed him or her in some fairly insignificant way, and they've never forgiven you. They don't even talk to you anymore. And, and you and I could probably admit, if we had the humility to do so, that we've all had those moments when we were angry, when we were afraid, when we were tired, maybe just hungry, and some inner rabid animal comes out of us and, and we treat people horribly and we wish we could take it back, but we can't. There's an old saying, it says, it goes like this, uh, people are like tea bags. You don't know what's really inside of them until you put them in hot water. So in this series, we've seen 
that Jesus was consistently gracious. He was consistently a man who loved his neighbor. There was never a time we can point to where he saw someone in need and he didn't do whatever he could for them. And it wasn't just the sort of random act of kindness sort of thing. It was, he invested in people's lives. And that's what we're trying to become as a, as a church, is a church full of people who invest in the lives of others. Even if it takes days, weeks, months, years, we reach out to the lost, we reach out to the hurting, we, we, we struggle along with the grieving, we bear the burdens of those who are suffering. That's who we are. That's how we measure our effectiveness as disciples. And yet, what would happen to Jesus on the worst day of his life? I mean, what if the side of Jesus we've been talking about all along was just that best self that he was trying to project? What happens when Jesus experiences more pain and pressure than any human beings ever experienced before? That's what we're gonna look at today because there was a moment in time when Jesus went through the worst moment of his life, the worst moment anybody on earth has ever experienced. Did it bring out something inside of him that wasn't what he wanted us to see? And did it change the way he related to human beings around him? So a couple of things you need to know before we get into this story that will make the story make more sense. Number one, this is important. If this is all you hear in the sermon, you, you'll, have, you'll have benefited from this. Jesus was fully man and fully God. And that's something that not many people understand. You talk to your average non-Christian, you ask them who Jesus was and they'll say, he's a great teacher. He was a wonderful person. He was one of the best people who ever lived. Absolutely. But he was also God. You talk to a lot of Christians and you listen to them talk and you realize they don't really see Jesus as fully human. They don't wrestle with the humanity of Jesus. They see, they see him as a God who came down and sort of put on a human suit and walked around, sort of God in disguise. But no, Jesus was fully God and fully human. Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way just as we are. I know this is gonna rock your world, but that means there were times when Jesus wanted to sin. Wanting to sin is the definition of temptation. Jesus had the same emotions as we do. He experienced the same struggles, the same frailties, the same limitations. And so that's important to understand because when we see this story, Jesus expresses some emotions. You have to understand those are real. Jesus is really going through this. The second thing is you need to know where this took place and when. This is the night that the church traditionally called Maundy Thursday or Sorrowful Thursday. We don't really know what day of the week it was, but it was hours before he was arrested. Hours before he was arrested and just after the Last Supper. So traditionally, we believe that's, that's Thursday. The next day's Good Friday. That doesn't matter as much as the fact that Jesus knows that in just a little while, he's gonna be arrested, tried, beaten, and crucified. And so he and his disciples, having just had their Passover meal together, they're walking up that slope called the Mount of Olives, where they've been walking every night that week, staying in Bethany, probably with Lazarus and Mary and Martha, but they stop short of Bethany. Halfway up the mountain, halfway up the, the hill, there's a little olive grove where they have often stopped to pray, and we call it Gethsemane. And that's where the story picks up. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
Now, Greek scholars will tell you that the two English words sorrowful and troubled don't really cut it in terms of what Jesus was experiencing. Just to give you some idea of what kind of pressure he was under. Luke, the only one of the four gospel writers that was an actual physician, he recorded a detail the others didn't pick up on, and that is that Jesus was actually sweating blood in that moment. And if you think that's something supernatural, it's not. Uh, there's an actual medical condition, very rare, but if, if the human body is under incredible stress, sometimes that emotional stress will cause the capillaries under the skin to burst, and so you'll have blood coming out of certain pores. And that's what Jesus was going through. Notice also, he says to Peter, James, and John, come and sit with me, keep awake with me, keep watch with me. Isn't it interesting that even the Son of God needed somebody to be with him in his darkest moment? If he needed it, we need it too. So that brings up an uncomfortable question. Why was Jesus so afraid? I know it seems like a silly question, but, but we've become accustomed to, in our stories, in our movies, we've been accustomed to the hero faces death stoically, if not cheerfully. The hero laughs at death. They're not afraid. So why is Jesus afraid? There are actual stories from the early days of the church in which Christian martyrs tied to a stake as the flames were leaping and, and lapping at their feet. They're singing hymns in the midst of their anguish. So why is Jesus acting so differently here? I think the answer to that question is that Jesus was about to experience something that was more than physical death, more than physical pain every year at this time. Preachers all around the world do their best to try to depict for their congregants, this is what crucifixion must have felt like. Try to depict for their congregants how painful crucifixion was. And yes, I agree, probably the worst way to die, probably the cruelest method of execution any human being has ever come up with. And yet, and yet, Jesus wasn't worried about the physical pain. That's not what was on his mind. We, we know this because of his prayer. He says, Father, let this cup pass from me. He doesn't say, let the cross pass from me. He doesn't say, let the lash pass from me or the nails. He says, let this cup pass from me. Why does he say that? When you read the Old Testament prophets, often they would talk about God's wrath in terms of a cup filled to the brim with the wrath of God that he's getting ready to pour out on his people. And the wrath of God is a subject that a lot of folks misunderstand. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But but when Jesus was saying, Lord, let this, Father, let this cup pass from me, he's, he's praying, God, don't let me face your wrath. Father, don't let me face that wrath. If there's any other way to save them, I pray that it would be apart from me experiencing your wrath. And, and the way I look at it is this. So you probably know somebody and, and maybe you yourself have had to have cancer treatments. Sad to say, many people in this congregation are fighting cancer right now. Many of you have fought cancer or you've known someone who has. And it's pretty universal. If someone knows that they've been diagnosed with cancer, they're praying and hoping and crossing their fingers and saying, Lord, please let it be that I'm able to fight this without chemotherapy. Why? Well, you know, thank God that we have these treatments, that we have these ways of fighting against cancer. But everybody I've talked to has said chemotherapy is, is just rough. And we're it's better now because we have interventions that enable you to maybe ward off most of the nausea, but even so, your, your hair falls out, you feel terrible. Why? Because you are putting poison in your body to kill the cancer. Not enough to kill you, but enough to make you feel terrible. That poison is killing the cancer, and in the meantime, it's ravaging you. So I see it this way. 
Sin is the cancer we all bear as human beings for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3 tells us. And God's wrath is the cure. God's wrath kills our sin. And Jesus says, okay, you don't wanna take this, do you? I'll take it for you. He says that to every single one of us. Imagine, imagine if, if chemotherapy makes you sick, if it makes you feel terrible, imagine taking that treatment for every human being who, who is on the earth today and every human being who will ever live combined into one human body. That's what Jesus was facing. The full wrath of God, the wrath of God that we all deserve, the wrath of God that we've all got coming and he took it upon himself. So what is this wrath of God? We think of it in supernatural terms. We think of it as lightning from heaven or flames descending and roasting us or the earth below us opening up and swallowing us. And yes, those kinds of things happened a handful of times in scripture, but for the most part, it seems to me the Bible talks about God's wrath in very passive terms. And what I mean by that is God doesn't strike us down. He simply says, all right, go ahead. Because what is sin? Sin is us saying to God, leave me alone. I want to do this my way. That's what sin is. Every time you sin, you're telling God, get out of my face, get out of my way. I want things my way. So God's wrath is when he says, all right, go ahead. I won't stop you and I won't protect you from what's going to come as a result. Literally, the wrath of God is when he gives us what we want. Literally, hell is when in the end, he ultimately gives us what we want. When he says, all right then, have it your way. You want life without me? You got it. And you say, well, how can he do that? Believe me, it hurts him far more than we can ever imagine. But it's what we desire. It's what we ask for. So if, if hell, if judgment, if wrath is God pulling back his hands, if, God, if it's God letting us experience life without him, then that's what Jesus was about to experience. He would be cut off forever in those moments from the source of all good things. Not only that, Jesus will be cut off from his relationship with God. Let me show you what I'm talking about. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul's writing about, about hell and he writes, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's the destiny of all of us without redemption, away from God's glory, away from the power of his might, away from his goodness. Jesus says, I will take it instead. And what's even more significant for him is Jesus has dwelt in a relationship of harmony and love within the Godhead with the Father and the Holy Spirit forever. This is why God didn't need to create humanity. God didn't make humanity because he was lonely. God had everything he needed within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now Jesus is being cut out of that relationship. Now Jesus is being rejected by the Father. Now Jesus is on his own. In fact, I can't prove this I can't disprove it either. Some scholars believe that the reason Jesus was already so sorrowful and upset is not just because he was anticipating what that would feel like, it was because he was already experiencing it, that God had already withdrawn from him, that all the way up the Mount of Olives, Jesus was praying to the Father and for the first time ever, there was nothing there. And so it's safe to say that nobody had ever experienced the pain and the pressure and the horror that Jesus was experiencing in that moment. No one ever has, and no one ever will. He was experiencing hell on our behalf. And what did that reveal about him? 
The interesting thing is the disciples did see a side of Jesus they hadn't seen before. They'd never seen Jesus frightened before. In spite of all the, all the people who hated him, all the attempts on his life, Jesus had never shown fear before, but now he did. They'd never seen Jesus worried about himself, concerned about something that was going to happen to him. He'd never, ever cared about or intervened to protect himself, but now he's saying, sit up with me, wait with me, help me, I need your help. They saw a side of him they hadn't seen before. And this isn't what the sermon's about, but I think that should give you an indication of something that doesn't get said often enough. If you're a person who says, well, I can't weep, you know, but it's not Christian to weep, that is wrong. Oh, I can't show sorrow. I can't, I can't show sadness. I can't tell people that I'm hurting. I've got to just put on a brave face. That is not Christianity. Do you understand? There is nothing weak about admitting you need help. There's nothing weak about shedding tears. There's nothing weak about showing sadness. Please understand if the Son of God experienced these emotions, it is perfectly fine for you to experience those emotions too and to show those emotions. Where the sin comes in is, does that emotion change the way you relate to other people or the way you relate to God? So we're about to see how did Jesus change over the next few hours, the few remaining hours of his life, now that he was finally in a position of immense pressure and pain that would crush any man, any woman, how would he treat others in the midst of that time, in his worst moments? Well, let's see. Luke 23, 27 through 31 says, this is as Jesus is walking up Mount Calvary, carrying his cross. It says, and there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, I have to admit, I read that scripture many times down the course of my life, and it never really meant anything to me until I read a book by a female Christian author. And she pointed out that in the ancient world, the needs of women, the, the requests, the desires, uh, the, the struggles of women just didn't register on the, on the list of things that men cared about. You just didn't. I mean, maybe if you're a really, really good man, you cared about your own wife's needs. But even most men didn't do that. And so for her, it was significant that Jesus, as he's walking up this hill, carrying this wooden beam, his back is flayed of all its skin. He's lost a lot of blood. He knows what's about to happen to him. And yet he turns around and says to the women, I'm not thinking about me right now. I'm thinking about what you're about to go through. I'm thinking about the sorrow you're going to experience. And she said, it made me feel good that, that Jesus would care about somebody like me, even, even when nobody else sees what I'm struggling with. So Jesus, even on the worst day of his life, he's thinking about people that everyone else ignores. But that's not all. Luke 23, 33, it says, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, we call it Calvary or Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I've had Christians tell me before that uh, they don't think that Jesus was being literal when he said, love your enemies and pray for those who hate you. They said, well, you know, nobody can actually live that way. So Jesus was just presenting an, uh, an ideal, a, a, a standard we could never live up to and so that we would know we need grace. And I think that's absolutely wrong. 
think Jesus was dead serious because he practiced what he preached. And Jesus, as he lays there on the ground and they're driving those nails into his hands and feet, we can't even imagine the pain. And Jesus is already in this incredible torment because of the rejection, the abandonment of his father, the wrath of God that he's going through. And he's praying for the souls of the men who are crucifying him. And that's not all. Remember just a few hours earlier when he washed the feet of his disciples and he took on this, this role of a, of a servant and did this incredibly kind and thoughtful thing. You know, who, you know whose feet he washed? He washed Judas's feet. The one who in just a moment was gonna go out and betray him and collect his 30 pieces of silver. Jesus showed him love. So it shows that even on the worst day of Jesus's life, he's able to forgive. He's able to love even those who hate him the most. And then in John 19, 26 through 27, when Jesus, and this is him hanging on the cross, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And, and we've often heard that story preached in such a way that people say it's so beautiful that Jesus was thinking about his mom as he was dying, thinking someone needs to take care of my mom in the years to come. And yeah, it is. But I think most of us sitting here today would say, yeah, I think if I were dying and my mom were alive and needed care, I think I would be thinking about her needs too. I think all of us would hope that we would be at least that thoughtful. What I think is amazing is that he looks over at John the apostle. John, who just a few hours earlier couldn't stay awake when Jesus said, all I need is for you just to stay awake with me. John, who along with the other disciples, when the mob showed up, with their torches and their clubs and their spears, took off for the hills, fled for their lives, left Jesus all alone to face judgment with nobody standing by his side. And yet Jesus, and that's just happened. Those two things have just happened. And Jesus is able to look down at John and say, John, I still trust you enough. I still love you enough to say, take care of my mom for me. Even on the worst day of his life, Jesus was able to overlook the flaws of those who'd failed him and to love them in spite of it. And then there's Luke 23, 42. See, Jesus was dying on that cross, but there were two men dying alongside him. We don't know their names. We don't know anything about them. We know this, the Romans did not waste crucifixion on minor crimes. So we've traditionally called this guy we're about to read about the thief on the cross. The danger with that is, in our minds, we think of someone who shoplifts a pack of potato chips from the 7-Eleven, right? Or somebody who breaks into your house when you're not there and steals your stereo. This was, let's make no mistake, this guy had done some evil things. He would not have been on that cross if the Romans didn't think he was a very dangerous human. This is a man who never got baptized, never joined a church, never gave an offering, never did one good thing for the kingdom of God. And yet look what happens as with his dying breath, he cries out to Jesus. Verse 42 says, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's all, that's all he said. Remember me, Jesus. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. I tell you, there's a lot of words I love in the Bible, but the word today in that verse is one of the words I love the most because it tells me that my loved ones who died in Christ, I know exactly where they are. 
they went to be with Jesus right then. If that thief, if that criminal, if he was with Jesus that same day, then so are the people I love who died in Christ. Jesus gave this man this incredible promise. You didn't earn this. You don't have to. I earned it for you. I'm dying in your place. Therefore, because you called out to me, you will be with me today without any lag time, without any purgatory, with nothing in between. You will be with me in the most beautiful place you've ever seen. Even on his worst day, Jesus loved lost people and wanted to see them saved. And if you think that's amazing, it is, but it's not even the best part. You want me to tell you the best part? It's not, the best part is not what Jesus said, it's what he didn't say on that day. Starting with the moment he was arrested, we know that Jesus could have called down angels to destroy all his enemies and set him free. We know this because Jesus told his disciples, you don't need to defend me. I could call and a legion of angels would be here in an instant. You know how many a legion was? A legion in the Roman army was 6,000 troops. The Bible tells us in 2 Kings 19 that one day, one angel, one angel came down and killed 185,000 enemy soldiers, soldiers of Assyria who were besieging Jerusalem. That's one angel. What could 6,000 do? Jesus says, I could call down a legion, but I won't. He let them arrest him. Later on, he's on trial for his life and it's a sham of a trial. They're bringing up charges against him that are ludicrous. And Jesus could have easily defended himself, could have easily proven that he was innocent. We've seen him do it all through the gospels. We see Israel's brightest minds, sharpest scholars came to him and tried to trip him up and tried to trap him in his words and tried to give him unanswerable questions. And every time Jesus was able to outwit them easily and make them look like fools and he could have done it here. But as Isaiah 53 says, instead, like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then as he's hanging on that cross and his enemies are spitting in his face and they're saying, come down off that cross if you're the son of God, he could have said, okay, watch me. If a human being would have written this story, that's the way it would end. If Hollywood were making this story, that's how it would end. There's even a part of me that wishes just so he could have shut those guys up that Jesus would have gotten down off the cross and destroyed them and walked away with his arm lifted up in triumph. That day is coming. But on this day, Jesus said nothing and he let them insult him. You know, there's one thing his enemy said that day that's actually true. They said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. And they were 100% right because if he'd saved himself, he couldn't have saved others. Jesus had a choice to make in that moment. His salvation or ours, his life or our lives. And thank God, he chose us. Now, this entire series, we focused on becoming people who are like Jesus, who, who reach out and, and, and invest in the lives of people who are struggling. That's why we're a church about transforming relationships. We're trying to equip you to live that way every single day, to see this, this coworker, this neighbor, this, this, uh, this friend, this, uh, this parent, this, this uh, little old lady who has nobody, this, this person who is struggling, that's an opportunity that God's brought into your life so you can reach out to them in love. And yet when we get to the end of Jesus' life, we go, I can't, I can't do this. Jesus, even on his worst day, was still loving his neighbor, 
was still investing in others, was still caring more about them than he cared about himself. And all of us look at that and say, I could never be that loving. Oh, yes, you can. In fact, you will. I know this because when Jesus drank that cup of God's wrath, he wasn't just taking away our punishment. He was taking away our sin. That wrath, that, that poison killed our sin, nailed it to the cross. And it's replaced with his righteousness. We're not just declared righteous by God, although we are, we're made righteous. We have the righteousness of God inside of us and the Holy Spirit is slowly peeling back the layers of our old nature, revealing this perfect image of Christ and his love. And all we have to do is say, yes, Lord, I want that and pursue it. There's a verse in Philippians that says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. A lot of people misunderstand that and say, oh, we're supposed to work to be saved? No, it's work out your salvation. In other words, your salvation has been given to you as a gift by God. Now you work it into every area of your lives. Now you work as the Holy Spirit works alongside of you, making you into the image of Christ. It's sort of like if the richest man on earth said, I wanna give you the best car that's ever been invented, the best car that's ever been created. And you say, but I can't drive. And he says, well, you know, one of these days I'll come in and teach you to drive. Now, let me ask you something. You've got the greatest piece of hardware that's ever been invented by engineers. Are you gonna learn to drive or not? Yeah, I think you're gonna learn to drive. Otherwise, it's just sitting in your garage collecting dust. There's a whole lot of Christians who I believe are genuinely saved. And the righteousness of God sits inside them collecting dust. And they've never learned to use it. They've never learned to wield it. They've never learned to live like Jesus. And we can do that. We can become like him. It's not gonna happen overnight. It's not gonna happen next year. But we can become every day a little more like him. He can teach you. He can shape you into his image. He can make you a person who loves others like he does. Are you willing to learn? because that's what our lives are for.